Chapter Seventy of Wilder's Hand. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kathy Barrett. Wilder's Hand by J. Sheridan Lefanu. Chapter Seventy The Meeting in the Long Pond Alley. I suppose there were few waking heads at this hour in all the wide parish of Gillingdon, though many a usually idle one was now busy enough about the great political struggle which was to muster its native forces, both in borough and county, and agitate these rural regions with the roar and commotion of civil strife. But generals must sleep like other men, and even Tom Wealdon was snoring in the fairyland of dreams. The night was very still a sharp night, with a thin moon, like a scimitar, hanging bright in the sky, and a myriad of intense stars blinking in the heavens, above the steep roofs and spiral chimneys of Brandon Hall, and the ancient trees that surrounded it. It was late in the night, as we know. The family, according to their custom, had sought their slumbers early, and the great old house was perfectly still. One pair, at least, of eyes, however, were wide open, one head busy, and one person still in his daily costume. This was Mr. Larcom, the grave major-domo, the bland and attached butler. He was not busy about his plate, nor balancing the cellar-book, nor even perusing his Bible. He was seated in that small room or closet which he had years ago appropriated as his private apartment. It is opposite the housekeeper's room, a sequestered philosophic retreat. He dressed in it, read his newspaper there, and there saw his select acquaintance. His wardrobe stood there. The iron safe in which he kept his keys filled one of its nooks. He had his two or three shelves of books in the recess, not that he disturbed them much, but they were a grave and gentlemanlike property, and he liked them for their binding and the impression they produced on his visitors. There was a meditative fragrance of cigars about him, and two or three Havana stumps under the grate. The fact is, he was engaged over a letter, the writing of which, considering how accomplished a gentleman he was, he had found rather laborious and tedious. The penmanship was, I am afraid, clumsy, and the spelling here and there irregular. It was finished, however, and he was now reading it over with care. It was thus expressed. Respected sir, in accordance with your desire, I have took my pen to say a few words. There has come a letter for a certain person this morning, with a London postmark, and I do not know hand nor seal, but bad writing, which I have not seen what contains, but I may, for as you told me often, you are anxious for welfare of our family, as I know to be no more than truth. So I am anxious to askest you, sir, which my conscience is satisfied, but letter as troubled a certain person awful who i knew was angry and look awful put about which do not often happen and you may see where there is something in wind he is all day so awful peevish you will not think worse of me speaking plain as you desire there being a deal to regret for friends of the old family i fear in a certain recent marriage if i should learn bechance contents of letter i will see where write you i remain your humble servant john larcom just as grave mr larcom had ended the perusal of this bulletin he heard a light step on the stair at the end of the passage which made his manly heart jump unpleasantly within his fat ribs he thrust the unfolded letter roughly into the very depths of his breeches pocket and blew out both candles and then listened as still as a mouse what frightened him was the certainty that the step which he well knew was stanley lake's and stanley being a wide-awake and violent person and his measures sharp and reckless mr larcom cherished a nervous respect for him 
He listened. The captain's step came lightly to the foot of the stairs, and paused. Mr. Larcom prepared to be fast asleep in the chair, in the event of the captain's making a sudden advance, and entering his sanctum. But this movement was not executed. There was a small door at the foot of the stairs. It shut with a spring lock, of which Captain Lake had a latch-key. Mr. Larcom accidentally had another, a cylindrical bit of steel, with a hinge in the end of it, and a few queer wards. Now of this little door he heard the two iron bolts stealthily drawn, and then the handle of the spring-lock turned, and the door cautiously opened and as gently closed. Mr. Larcom's fears now naturally subsided, and curiosity as naturally supervened. He drew near his window, and it was well he had extinguished his lights, for as he did so Captain Lake's light figure, in a grey paletot and cloth cap, glided by like a spirit in the faint moonlight. This phenomenon excited the profoundest interest in the corresponding friend of the family, who, fumbling his letter between his finger and thumb in his breeches' pocket, standing on tiptoe, with mouth agape and his head against the shutter, followed the receding figure with a greedy stare. Mr. Larcom had no theory whatsoever to account for this procedure on the part of his master. It must be something very extraordinary, and well worth investigating, of course for the benefit of the family, which could have evoked the apparition which had just crossed his window. With his eyes close to the window-pane, he saw his master glide swiftly along the short terrace which covers this side of the house, and disappear down the steps like a spectre sinking into the earth. It is a meeting, thought Mr. Larcom, taking courage, for he already felt something of the confidence and superiority of possessing a secret and as quickly as might be the trustworthy man with his latch-key in his pocket softly opened the portal through which the object of his anxiety had just emerged closed the door behind him and stood listening intently in the recess of the entrance where he heard the now more careless step of the captain treading as he thought the broad yew-walk which turns at a right angle at the foot of the terrace step the black yew-hedge was a perfect screen here was obviously resented a chance of obtaining the command of a secret of greater or less importance it was a considerable stake to play for and well worth a trifling risk he did not hesitate to follow but with the soft tread of a polite butler doing his offices over the thick carpet of a drawing-room and it was in his mind suppose he does discover me what then i'm as much surprised as he thomas bruin the footman who is under notice to leave has twice to the captain's knowledge played me the same trick and stole out through the gun-room window at night and denied it afterwards so i sat up to detect him and hearing the door open and a step i pursued and find i've made a mistake and beg pardon with proper humility, supposing the master is on the same errand. What can he say? It will bring me a present, and a hint to say nothing of my having seen him in the yew-walk at this hour. Of course he did not run through all this rigmarole in detail, but the situation, the excuse, and the result were present to his mind, and filled him with a comfortable assurance. Therefore, with decision and caution, he followed Captain Lake's march and reaching the yew-walk he saw the slim figure in the cap and paletot turn the corner and entered the broad walk between the two wall-like beech hedges which led direct to the first artificial pond a long narrow parallelogram round which the broad walk passed in two straight lines fenced with the towering beech hedges shorn as smooth as the walls of a nunnery when the butler reached the point at which captain lake had turned he found himself all at once within fifty steps of that eccentric gentleman who was talking but in so low a tone that not even the sound of the voices reached him with a rather short broad-shouldered person buttoned up in a surtout 
and wearing a queer Germanesque felt hat, battered and crushed a good deal. Mr. Larcombe held his breath. He was profoundly interested. After a while, with an oath, he exclaimed, "'That's him!' Then, after another pause, he gasped another oath. "'It is him!' The square-built man in the surtout had a great pair of black whiskers, and as he stood opposite Lake, conversing, with now and again an earnest gesture, he showed a profile which Mr. Larcombe knew very well, and now they turned and walked slowly side by side, along the broad walk by that perpendicular wall of crisp brown leaves. He recognized also a certain hitch in his shoulder, which made him swear and asseverate again. He would have given something to hear what was passing. He thought uneasily whether there might not be a side-path or orifice anywhere through which he might creep, so as to get to the other side of the hedge and listen. But there was no way, and he must rest content with such report as his eyes might furnish. "'They're not quarrelling no ways,' murmured he. And indeed they walked together, stopping now and again, as it seemed, very amicably. Captain Lake seemed to have most to say. "'He's awful cowed, he is. I never did think to see Mr. Wilder so afeard of Lake. He is afeard.' "'Yes, he is. That he is.' And indeed there was an indescribable air of subservience in the demeanour of the square-built gentleman, very different from what Mark Wilder once showed. He saw the captain take from the pocket of his paletot a square box or packet—it might be jewels or only papers—and hand them to his companion, who popped them into his left-hand surtout pocket, and kept his hand there as if the freightage were specially valuable. Then they talked earnestly a little longer, standing together by the pond, and then, side by side, they paced down the broad walk by its edge. It was a long walk. Honest Larcombe would have followed if there had been any sort of cover to hide his advance, but there being nothing of the kind, he was fain to abide at his corner. Thence he beheld them come at last, slowly to a standstill, talk evidently a little more, and finally they shook hands, an indefinable something, still of superiority in Lake's air, and parted. The captain was now all at once walking at a swift pace, alone, towards Larkham's post of observation, and his secret confederate nearly as rapidly in an opposite direction. It would not do for the butler to be taken or even seen by Lake, nor yet to be left at the outside of the door and barred out so the captain had hardly commenced his homeward walk when larcombe though no great runner threw himself into an agitated amble and reached and entered the little door just in time to escape observation he had not been two minutes in his apartment again when he once more beheld the figure of his master cross the window and heard the small door softly opened and closed and the bolts slowly and cautiously drawn again into their places then there was a pause lake was listening to ascertain whether any one was stirring and being satisfied reascended the stairs leaving the stout and courteous butler ample matter for romantic speculation it was now the butler's turn to listen which he did at the half-opened door of his room when he was quite assured that all was quiet he shut and bolted his door closed the window-shutters and relighted his pair of wax-candles mr larcombe was a good deal excited he had seen strange things that night he was a good deal blown and heated by his run and a little wild and scared at the closeness of the captain's unconscious pursuit his head beside was full of amazing conjectures after a while he took his crumpled letter from his pocket unfolded and smoothed it and wrote upon a blank half-page 
respected sir since the above i have a much to tell most surprisin the gentleman you were anxious of tiding mr m w is come private and him and master met to-night near two in morning in the long pond alley so is near home than we supposed no more at present sir from your humble servant john larcom I shall go to Dollington day arter to-morrow by eleven o'clock train if you are goin sir when the attorney returned between eleven and twelve o'clock next morning this letter awaited him it did not of course surprise him but it conclusively corroborated all his inferences here had been mark wylder he had stopped at dollington as the attorney suspected he would and he had kept tryst in the brandon grounds with sly captain lake whose relations with him it became now more difficult than ever clearly to comprehend wylder was plainly under no physical coercion he had come and gone unattended for one reason or other he was at least as strongly interested as lake in maintaining secrecy that mark wylder was living was the grand fact with which he had just then to do how near he had been to purchasing the vicar's reversion the engrossed deeds lay in the black box there and yet it might be all true about mark's secret marriage at that moment there might be a whole rosary of sons small and great to intercept the inheritance and the reverend william wilder might have no more chance of the estates than he had of the crown what a deliverance for the good attorney his money was quite safe the excellent man's religion was we know a little jewish and rested upon temporal rewards and comforts he thought i am sure that a competent staff of angels were placed specially in charge of the interests of josiah larkin esq who attended so many services and sermons on sundays and led a life of such ascetic propriety he felt quite grateful to them in his priggish way their management in this matter had been so eminently satisfactory he regretted that he had not an opportunity of telling them so personally i don't say that he would have expressed it in these literal terms but it was fixed in his mind that the carriage of his business was supernaturally arranged perhaps he was right and he was at once elated and purified and his looks and manner that afternoon were more than usually meek and celestial End of chapter seventy